This is Dubai Eye 103.8. Well, welcome along to a very, very special off-script podcast. It's myself, Chris McCarty, and Robbie Greenfield. And over the course of the next hour or so, we are in conversation with the former England, the former Chelsea captain, John Terry. He joined us in these very studios. Let me start, though, by saying, Robster, welcome. Conversation. Yeah, thank you very much, Chris. John Terry... Give us a little bit of background, not that he needs an introduction, but as a footballer, he's achieved an awful lot. He's a very successful footballer. He's regarded as certainly one of the greatest centre-backs that has ever played in the Premier League. You put him in the conversation with probably Nemanja Vidic, Rio Ferdinand, Yap Stam, perhaps. There's a couple of uh, contenders, but John Terry's name would be right up there. And he's also a, a character that has courted a, a fair amount of controversy during his, his playing career. He's had some moments where he's made headlines for, for a lot of the wrong reasons. And um, as a result, a lot of people have preconceptions of what John Terry is like. And there's no doubt about that. October 1998, it was Gianluca Vialli that gave John Terry his debut for Chelsea. He would stay at that football club all the way through until 2017, a 19-year period that saw John win five Premier League titles, five FA Cups, two League Cups, throw in a Champions League and a Europa League as well. And he's achieved it all in the game. He certainly has. He is very decorated. He's done it all at one club. He's, he's really one of the last bastions of, of, of a, of a one-club legend. We've seen them dying out. They're a dying breed in modern football. And uh, he lives and breathes Chelsea Football Club. He's now the assistant head coach at Aston Villa and embarking on a career in management. But let's get into this conversation, yep. Chris. We are in conversation for the next 65 minutes or so with a footballing legend from the Premier League. And there's a set piece, there's going to be a chance. It's Terry's header, and it's in! Partey, it's in towards Terry! John Terry for Chelsea! The captain, the leader, has equalised for Chelsea! The captain, the leader, the legend that is John Terry. He joins us in studio, and I say to you, John, welcome to our humble abode. Pleasure to be here, it's beautiful. I love Dubai, and uh, very impressive here. And you're here for the Dubai Fitness Challenge as well, of course. We're going to touch on that in just a moment. Dubai, it is a home away from home for you a little bit. It is, actually. We first come here in 99, 2000, just me and my wife. And the kids have kind of been here since they've grown up. So we've probably been here two, three times a year. Very fortunate to kind of come to such a beautiful place. But it's definitely our favourite place as and a family. John, you're out here with the Dubai Fitness Challenge. 30 minutes of exercise for 30 straight days. That's the initiative. And it's, yeah. it's been very successful in the years that it's been running. Give us an idea of, of exactly what you're going to be doing in the next couple of days. Well, I've been down at the football facility this morning, uh, watching the kids play some, play some football. That can be any sport. We're not just talking football mm. here. We're talking cycling, swimming, running, uh, a bit of Zumba as well from my <laughs> wife going on. So a little bit of everything. But like we say, just important to get out for 30 minutes of exercise a day uh, for 30 days is is excellent. Yeah, you mentioned your wife, Tony, as well. She has written a book about it, about the importance of working with friends and family. I mean, do you carry that mantra into your daily life? Do you work out with the missus on a regular basis? I did. I, I kind of retired and thought that was the end of it. I, I could give up kind of uh, exercising, but she's uh, she's con constantly on the case to me. You know, up, getting the family up out uh, in the gym, Sunday mornings, on the bike, on the treadmill, for a walk with the, with the dogs, a little, little jog with the dogs, that kind of thing. But So she's very active. It's very important as a family as well, because kids nowadays as well, especially around computers and stuff like that, it's important to get them out. Whether that's 30, 40, 40 minutes, an hour a day, it's very important. When you're in a routine like you had for so many years, John, and you've transitioned into coaching, obviously you're still active in football, but how tough is it yeah. to stay fit? Because you see a lot of athletes, I won't name any names, but mm. they, they retire and they kind of let themselves go a little bit. But it's pretty tough, I would imagine, to, to keep that routine going. Yeah, it's very tough because you're, you're probably doing as a player between five and eight K a day without even thinking about it. That's just on the on the football pitch. With gym work as well, it's probably around 10K throughout the day. So when you stop and realise that you've got to go on a 10K run just to sustain what, the way you're looking, it's quite difficult. And that's why you see a few players blooming up. Now, you've not paid me to say this, but you're looking in decent nick, I'm John. I'm too bad. I've put on a couple of kilos, but I'm... Um, Could you yeah. still play, you reckon? I think I could. I still get involved every now and then. If there's a little injury in training or if we're short in numbers, I get involved. Didn't you score a world-class goal the other day? You posted on your Instagram. I posted. I did, <laughs> a few. Yeah. I think there was a few. Yeah. There was a couple. A little bit of shooting at the end of training. But um, yeah, I, I still miss it, obviously. It's the best feeling ever. 
you know, being a footballer. But I'm on the other side now and I'm enjoying that side of it as well. Yeah, let's talk about that. How much are you enjoying Aston Villa uh, and working and learning off of Dean Smith, who, bit of a footballing visionary, did great work at Walsall, carried that through to Brentford. Mm. Given the job of his dreams at Aston Villa, you enjoying working under him? I am, actually. He's a really good guy. And uh, my brother used to play for him at Leighton Orient, so there's a connection there. We've known each other. Obviously, I played at Villa for, for one year as well. He's a big Villa fan and, and obviously done done great at Brentford. So he got the opportunity. We kind of spoke and just hit it off straight away as well. So got uh, got the same mindset and, and, and the same thought process regarding football. So it works well, but I'm, I'm learning every single day of him and it's, it's a real pleasure to be around him. As we mentioned, you won 15 trophies during your playing career. How did getting Villa back into the Premier League as yeah. a feeling of euphoria, how did it compare to, to winning a trophy? Yeah, I mean, we missed. I missed out as a player. Actually, we lost in the final to, to Fulham the year before. So to have the opportunity, firstly, to go back to the club, and then as a coach to kind of be part of that process is completely different. You you feel like you've done nothing. So when all the players are celebrating after the game, you kind of, I missed it to be honest, because I was the, kind of at the forefront of them celebrations and and everything else. So I missed that side of it. But as a coach, we was having conversations ten minutes after the game, going right signings for next season. It was like, right, move on now. We were in the Premier League. What can we do to now sustain ourselves and, and, and be in the Premier League? How does that feeling change, John, from being a player winning things and a coach winning things? We've talked about it, Robbie and I, on this show, whereby, you know, me growing up, I wanted to bypass mm. a playing career. Not that I was much of a player, I should point out as well, John. I wanted always to be a leader of men, mm. to, to pull them through battle and win trophies. The feeling, the difference in being successful as a player and a coach, is there a difference there? Oh, there's a massive difference. Is there? Yeah, there's a huge difference. As, as a player, you feel... It's, it's probably the same when you're injured as well. So if you're injured and miss a game, whether that be... I mean, I miss the Champions League final. It's I just... After the game, the lads were... I just didn't feel like I'd... Not that I didn't win it, I felt part of it because I'd, I'd had a process on the build-up to the final, but I just didn't feel the same as, as if I would have, as I was playing. You know, Is so that a regret when you look back on that? Obviously, you won it. You, you've still got yeah. the winner's medal. Was that the toughest 90 minutes that you had to sit through because you weren't involved in the heat of the action? Yeah, a little bit, but also as well, you kind of realise the pressure. So I've, I've obviously missed the penalty in the 2008 one against Man U. Devastated. Like For me, the most important thing was in my lifetime, my career, I just wanted the Chelsea fans to experience that and win the Champions League. We'd done that. So whether that was with me or without me, because I'm Chelsea through and through, that's all that matters to me. How certain were you that Didier was going to score? A million percent. <laughs> it, was out, yeah. it was the most nonchalant penalty, wasn't no, it? It was one, yeah. one step and just yeah. banged it into the bottom left corner. But we've got to touch, we're going to talk about Chelsea, of course. Um, we've got to touch a little bit on, on England as well, because last night, 7-0 winners over Montenegro. Thousandth match, thousandth international match, and you were a big part of of England for for a long time. What's your impression of this England? And if we compare Gareth Southgate, there's a lot of been a lot of talk has been about the culture of England and how that's changed. What's your impression looking into that as to how it's changed and why it's changed? Well, firstly, no, no, uh, Steve Holland, who's a big part of the England setup, and Gareth as well. Obviously, played with Gareth at the the, the back end of his career, mine. And uh, just what you hear from the players and, and what you know of Gareth, he's doing amazing things with the group as well. So pretty much when I was playing and part of the England setup, you kind of go in, you get told what to do, when to do. Even after meetings, you get told whether you played well or didn't. Now he's very inclusive with the group as well. And I think when we're looking at the millennials nowadays, after games, he's kind of having debriefs or getting players to lead these meetings themselves of going, OK, we're playing against these. What's their weaknesses from set plays? And the players then get up and have to watch the videos and, and dissect it. Where can where do we feel as players? Because it's okay you as a manager going, right, this is what I feel. But I think as a group of players, if you're thinking something completely different to the coach, you're going to get nowhere. Mm. So he, he listens to them an awful lot before and after games and, and, and likes their input. So that side of it, I really like uh, the way he's coaching and bringing them through. But just very excited as an England fan now. He was vilified, was Gareth, in some quarters mm. this past week with his handling of the fracas between Raheem Sterling yeah. and Joe Gomez in training. Your thoughts? I mean, is it fair that some are actually criticising him for what I believe? And again, I know my opinion doesn't matter in all of this, but I actually thought what he did was very un-British. Mm. It was actually quite mature to say, mm. I'm not going to castigate Raheem Sterling. He's still part of my squad, but it's wrong to grab another player and he's banned for a match. Yeah, I mean... I would still like Raheem to be part of that to be part of that game last night. 
it's a big occasion, big occasion for him, and he's probably our best player at the moment as well. So as long as it's not a reoccurring incident mm. with him, it's not like he's done it before or, or if he does it again. I think for me, we're talking about players earning fortunes nowadays. Everyone says players don't care nowadays. It's different. All they care about is the money. You've got two players playing for the probably the best two two teams in the world at the moment, coming in a day after the game, still Fair. caring about it. And you go, I think there's a positive to spin on that. You go, them two best players caring about their football clubs. I hope if we have a disappointed game or, or a result for England, they go away and I, and I want them to have that same feeling. If they've got that, something's right. Oh. Was, was Gareth damned if he did and damned if he didn't? Because if he, if he hushed it up yeah. and it had come out in the press, there would have probably been a lot of articles about maybe his, his weakness in handling it. Yeah, I don't think you can hush anything up in England <laughs> set up. It all, it all gets out, the team gets out and everything. So that's very difficult. I think, listen, that... They're two grown-ups. Get them alongside each other with you as the manager. And you could have, I think they could have dealt with it slightly better. For a lot of players came out in the aftermath to say, ah, oh, this is commonplace in football. I've done this with a, another player. I've done this. Give us an insight, John. You ever been in a, a wee tussle with a teammate or two? I've had a few square-ups, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> on the training pitch. But that's, that's all it is. It's, it's heat at the moment stuff. Two minutes later, you're in the dressing room and you shake hands. It's completely forgotten. One million percent. No carryovers the following day or an hour later. Completely forgotten heat at the moment stuff. It happens. And if you're involved in football, you know it happens. You were part of the England so-called golden generation. When you look back and reflect on your time at England or with England, do you, do you have regret about how some of those major, major tournaments were, were handled and, and, and you know maybe the culture and how, how it's so different today? Yeah, probably little bits actually. And when I when I become England captain, I tried to change a few things uh, with the FA and a, a little bit just around the camp. And for me, it was we had some of the best players in the world at the time playing for Man United, Liverpool, Chelsea, and all coming together. And we kind of didn't do what we we should have um, gone on to achieve to do. And for me, that come down to if I'm at Chelsea and we play on a Saturday and the following Saturday, you don't need to tell John Terry or Frank Lampard or Steven Gerrard or Paul Scholes how to prepare in that week. Mm. And I think when, when we was away of England, we was pretty much, we'd meet up on a Sunday, the game would be the, the Saturday or the Friday night, and you'd spend the whole week locked up in a hotel room. And all you're doing is thinking about the game, thinking about the game, thinking about the game. That's not a good place to be. And I tried to kind of change things, make things a little bit more relaxed. Like if I was at Chelsea, like I'm saying, on a Tuesday, I'd go and have nine holes or 18 holes with a couple of lads. And we're in a hotel on the golf course, and we wasn't allowed to play golf on a Tuesday or Wednesday. Really bizarre small things. We wasn't allowed out in the local town to, to have a coffee. If I'm at Chelsea, I go and have a coffee in my local town or pick the kids up from school. We missed all those little bits, I think, of just being ourselves. We was how the public wanted us to be. Mm. Like we're in the England camp, we can't do our normal normal things and when you'd go back to Chelsea on that then John and, and talk to your international teammates mm. and, and you'd obviously be picking their brains what mm. do they do in the weeks leading up to games whether Portuguese Germany Italian whatever yeah. is that the same for them are they locked away or are they given a little bit more freedom the Spanish boys 100% loads more freedom their family can come to the hotel uh, they can go out and, and have dinner together uh, they can go and play golf they turn up to if the weather's boiling hot which it is nine times out of ten in Spain you can go to the game in shorts and flip-flops and a little bit more relaxed. I think we we got caught in a process of we have to be this way and we're robots. We're not, we're human beings and we want to pick the kids up from school. We want to go for a coffee and switch off away from football. Spain was allowed to do that. We wasn't. I'm not saying that was the be-all and end or why we didn't win anything. But I just think those little details can make a big difference. And aside from with a club, if you lose a game, you, you get the chance the next couple of days or the next weekend to, to put it right. Mm. With an international tournament that comes around every four years, there's a long time to wait. And yeah. uh, was there a sense of pressure on you to perform? I'm thinking 2004, 2006, when there was a real expectation that yeah. England would, would win a trophy. Did you feel that within the camp? Felt the pressures, of course, because obviously you're watching the TV, you're, you're reading the papers on a daily basis as well. I think playing at the top, you have to learn how to handle the pressure. And I, f I think we did as players because we'd done that at club level. It just wasn't meant to be. I don't know why, whether that was formation or we tried to fit players in, a, in a, that maybe didn't fit the formation. I don't know. But 
certainly underachieved for sure. Now you're a coach, John. This is the million-dollar question that all England fans want answered. How would you have gone about ensuring that Stephen Gerrard and Frank Lampard can play together? <laughs> I would have found a way. <laughs> <laughs> because it's the, it's the one that's thrown out there. They are yeah. two, arguably the two best midfielders the Premier League and before the Man United fans get in touch Paul Scholes, Roy Keane I know there's many that have played in the Premier League but those two on paper at the very least should have been able to play together and this perpetual kind of notion that they didn't I mean your take on it? We played pretty much 4-4-2 really when, when I was playing and you kind of look at it now you would have loved the Michael Carrick sitting in front of the back four and them two just in front of him and you know three boys up top Formations kind of move on. We did try and kind of fit him in. We had Scalzi playing left or Joe Cole playing left. Wasn't there their natural positions at times? Stevie was wide left. Yeah, it was. A, it's a difficult one because I don't think there is an answer to it. Is there? Let's talk about Frank because he's doing a great job. I think um, the fact that he's been shackled somewhat by by the transfer ban and, and a lot of people thought that he might struggle in this first season with Chelsea. What's your perception of how he's doing? And is it now conceivable that Chelsea could win the league under Frank? A hundred percent. Frank's done unbelievable since he's come in. And I think the expectation level wasn't there. But I think that's helped him as well. Um, I think with, with the boys he had on loan at Derby last year, has served him well. And they've been excellent. Mason Mount coming back for Kayo has been excellent. Tammy scoring 26 goals, I think, for us last year at Villa. Coming back full of confidence. And actually having the option not to buy players has probably helped Lamps as well but because he understands them as well and I've I done, done an article before the season started saying what Frank's appointment would do for that academy because for so many years I mean I was the last one to, to really come through you get parents I used to have to have meetings with parents of, of an under 14 saying listen this is the right club for your boy yeah but he's not going to get a chance in the first team That the whole football club has lifted because they know if they're good enough under Frank and Jody they're going to get a chance at the football club and we're seeing that, and I think it's excellent. It's, the, it's what the fans want to see. And actually, I think a lot of Chelsea fans would say, we don't want our band upheld in, in, in yeah. January. We'd actually keep it as it is. It's almost like the, the perception of Chelsea, even from the outside, has flipped a bit. Because at the start of the Roman Abramovich era, mm. they were the kind of big spending, powerhouse team, you know, uh, Mourinho coming in. Now they have this underdog perception yeah. mm. because of the... Because of the transfer ban, because Frank is, is an inexperienced manager, there's a whole different vibe around the club, would you say? Yeah, I, I don't think just around the club. I think in the football world, I think. I think probably for the first time in, well, since I've known it, Chelsea are loved by, by a lot of teams. <laughs> yeah, we've said that. Yeah. We, we said they, it on the show. Are. I hate to say it, John. I yeah. mean, I'm not a Chelsea fan, yeah. but all of a sudden now, yeah. I want to watch Chelsea because yeah. the brand of football yeah. they're playing, there's a core of homegrown mm. players. Yeah. They're likeable. Yeah, they are. It's great to see. It's great to see him getting the opportunity. Uh, Billy Gilmore, who's kind of on the fringes as well, coming through. And trust me, Frank will be watching every under-23 game, every under-18 game. They will have their fingers on the pulse and making sure that after an under-23 game, going in that dressing room, telling the boys they're not good enough or you're with me the next day, you're training with the first team. The impact that has on the academy is incredible. I just want to touch on something that you said a couple of moments ago going to the parents of 14 year olds mm. as captain of Chelsea Football Club playing massive matches at the weekends midweek Champions League the expectation was you would still meet some parents of, of kids who were maybe looking at Chelsea as yeah. a potential employer a million percent you'd get called into, into regular meetings throughout the year and actually on a Sunday I'd go down and watch the under 12s under 8s under 10s watch all ages because I knew a lot of the coaches as well but just the intro, I think it's important to have that presence there as well, as captain of the club. I just thought it was the right thing to do, and I had, I had an interest in, in, in the new generation coming through, really, at all ages. My little girl was there for a few years as well, so we pushed the girls' football on. Me, Lamps, DDA was a big part of that as well. I think, I think when Chelsea's your life and, and Chelsea's you, it means a little bit more. N'Golo Kante, I don't know whether you've seen this, John, but he said if he could make one signing to the current team, he'd, he'd sign you. I'm not sure if he'd sign you in the present day or the, t the 2004 John Terry, but is that, I mean, is that reflective of the fact that maybe they do miss that strong leadership and, and someone to bolt the defence together? I think we've probably missed that uh, for a few years, to be honest. But now when I look at the, the, the defence, I mean, Caesar's there is an unbelievable defender, big character as well. Obviously lost David. I look at 
you know, Kurt and Fikar, they're, they're young boys learning their trade. I, I was given time mm. without the, the spotlight being on me of TV cameras, match of the day, highlighting incidents and, and stuff like that. So it's difficult for the younger lads, but give them time. They'll be leaders. I mean, Kurt's a big, a big character and a big leader in that dressing room as well. So give him time. I'm sure we'll see um, characters come out of this his current squad might sound a strange question but are, are you kind of glad that you, your career is over in that regard it, the, the 24-7 news cycle now mm. I mean uh, listen they are rewarded handsomely <laughs> I'm not going to sit here and say I feel sorry for professional footballers they are rewarded handsomely for their craft but the fact that the spotlight is on them with the advent of social media it, does part of you kind of not kind of feel sorry for them per se but are you glad that you weren't in the kind of uh, the, the top of your career in this current churn of want and desire to have a story on you. Yeah, probably. I, I probably caught the back end of it to be honest. So I was probably a part of that the last couple of yeah. years. Um, but yeah, I feel I feel for him because every every mistake's highlighted. I mean, you even look, we spoke about it earlier. Look at the England game last night with the performance and the result last night should be the main headline, and it's not. It's the negative stuff. And you go, there's so many positives out there that lads are doing away from football as well. You know, there's so many good stories there to be had, but unfortunately in our world we uh, we look for the negatives, which is disappointing. What, what was your policy in your playing days to just not read the papers? I'd read them, yeah. <laughs> you uh, would. Then, I'd read them then hope I'll see the journalist. Or, <laughs> yeah. but, on that then, yeah. so, so would you? Would, yeah, would you would, say, yeah. go up to them and yeah. have it out and, and say, give me your line of kind of thinking behind this article? Well, as a player, you know, after a game, whether you've played well or not, you don't need some journalist to tell you and stuff like that, but... There was, there was a couple in my kind of time where things got a bit personal, where every week it was an article, he's finished, he needs to retire, his legs are gone. Uh, Robbie Savage done one of me and obviously come for him publicly. But it probably went on for about a year. He had a, um, an article in the mirror. Every week it was about me. So, you know, I just come for him and... And there are people that are making a living of, forget devil's advocate, just talking nonsense yeah. to, for effect, yeah. just, to, just to rile people because yeah. it's, yeah. it's getting clicks on, on websites and it's getting callers into radio stations. Well, you look at the guys on Sky Sports and BT, actually, you know, like I say, if I've made a mistake, I've made a, but tell me how I've made a mistake or how I can do better because these younger players coming through now, if you're going to criticise them on TV, then go into detail. So if I'm sitting at home, I want to know why he's made that mistake then, why a certain player who's, who's a pundit sees that mistake or what he feels or what he would have done in that situation. Actually break it down. Don't just go, he's rubbish, he's made a mistake. Because now I'm sitting there, the other side of it, I go, well, if I'm a supporter, I don't really understand football. Make me understand it. Make me see in, in the eyes of the defender what you're seeing. I think if they do it constructively, I think, I think it's okay. The, the, the accusation of, of today's youth is that they can't really take criticism in, in today's society. You're obviously, you started out all those years back, John. You've come through, you're now in a coach. You're seeing the young players of today coming through. Is that the case? I, I mean, how has the outlook of youngsters coming through today changed today than it was perhaps 15, 20 years ago? Certainly very different. Yeah, you have to be very careful with what you say and who you say it to and why you say it. Um, yeah, I would say it's I, I think the big turning point was taking away jobs from the younger players. Uh, we used to clean boots, showers, toilets, all of that, have responsibilities with the first-team players. Nowadays, in most clubs, the first-team players wouldn't know the academy players' names. That's because they've not built up a relationship with them and don't, don't kind of understand what they do around the place. It's pretty much the younger players now, for me, come in, they're away before the first team players, That's which mental. isn't right. Do you want them spending hours and hours and hours on that training field to try and become a, a top player. You talk about Lamps. Lamps have finished training. He'd do some sprints. He'd put a wet jacket on, do some sprints on the football pitch, grab a bag of balls up. He'd go at the other end of the yeah. pitch for an hour, practicing his shooting. When he's doing that, you look around, the academy guys are driving out of the, the facility and you'd be like, that's not right, that. You've got the guy at the top of his game doing extras and younger players going home at 1.32 o'clock. You've spoken a lot about how you idolised Marcel Desailly when you kind of came up through the ranks. Do young players today lack the respect that they had 20 years ago for, for the senior generation of players? I'm not sure it's lack of respect. I just think they're very confident in themselves and rightly so because the ability of some of the players now is phenomenal. Um, really impressive. Um, but there's still, there's still the basics that need to be done for me. Um, the basics are making sure you work hard every day, be the best trainer every day, be on time. You know, we were talking about Lampsy's fine system earlier and stuff like that. It's, yeah. 
things like that are put in place because you want to create a really good culture around the place. So in my generation, if there was a meeting, if Mourinho called a meeting at 10.30, I'd be there at 10.15 because I'd never wanted to be late under Mourinho, never. But all of a sudden, everyone's there at 10.15. You know, if you're there at 10.20, you'll seem to be late, but you're 10 minutes early. So you're just creating a culture. We'll get to Mourinho in a second, and I want real insight and in, in the, the special one in just a moment. What you said there is interesting as well. You're right about the, the, the reporting of the fine system. Mm. This past week, it came hot on the heels of the Gareth Southgate episode, Frank Lampard, the fines that are installed at Chelsea Football Club. And it was Robbie that said on our show this past week, whereby, had that been Antonio Conte, and that was released, it would have been reported very differently. Mm. It would have been seen as Conte's too strict, he's too harsh on the players, the players are not happy, a source at the football club has said. The difference in how those two have been reported, Mm. I find fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's probably been in place with different figures over the the course of the last 20 years. (laughs) It's increased slightly from when I was playing a muscle. So the salaries, right? Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) It's just Lambert's what Lambert's have put in place and he's signed it and um, and right and all, they have a responsibility to be out there. If it's trained at 10.30, you're out at 10.15. It's the basics of being a top footballer. Just very quickly before we talk, Josie, I've been told a little tale about when you were a youngster, Play, uh, making coffees or teas there was this thing that you don't want to be doing that you don't want to be seen to doing that you had a different kind of thought process on that didn't you yeah I was just telling Jamie actually yeah. that um, my first day at Chelsea as a YTS so I went in and the older the players the older YTS he said to me if you get asked to make a cup of tea make the worst cup of tea you can make you won't get asked again <laughs> so I was sitting there thinking oh, that's, that's not right is it so I got asked to make a cup of tea a coffee for another player and you know stirred it loads put the sugar in put the right milk in. I wanted to make the best cup of tea. And if I'm a tea maker, then be the best tea maker. If I'm a cleaner, be the best cleaner. And it was, I, I used to do the kit at Chelsea as well. But I used to study on, I used to look at Dennis Wise. How did he put his kit on, on a match day? It might sound small, but to me... That's a bit weird, John. Yeah, I used to. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> Give me time, let me, yeah. let me finish. Okay. <laughs> but it was, Dennis Wise used to put his slip on first, his shorts next. But his kit was laid out with his t-shirt first, and, he's, and all of a sudden it was it's a small detail before a game. I just wanted Dennis Wise to make sure that his slip was on top. So when he got undressed, the first thing he found on top was a slip. Next thing was the shorts. Next thing was a t-shirt. So it was in order. Other players were different. And as kit man, I made sure that every player had their individual bits. No one really knows that, but it's just a small detail where when I was playing, I wanted my boots right, I wanted my kit right, because all I wanted to think about was my football. Football's a game of transients these days. I mean, players move seemingly every season, every couple of seasons. You're maybe one of the last bastions of of real one-club legends. When you look at the numbers, we'll actually read them out, John. It's it's actually, it's crazy numbers that you've accumulated. 15 trophies, five Premier Leagues, five FA Cups, three League Cups, Champions League, Europa League, and you played under 11 different permanent managers throughout that time, six of whom won trophies at the club. How, in your words, was the club so successful throughout this kind of perpetual turmoil and, and rot- revolving door of managers? I think we had a really good core of players, actually. The spine of the team uh, was very important. Mourinho was a big part of that. When he first arrived, kind of set standards of how he wanted things. And that kind of stayed with the club. Even when he wasn't there, that stayed with the club. His winning mentality on a daily basis was massive. Viali, of course, gave you your debut. Jose Mourinho came in 2004, and we'll get to Jose in a second. Before all of that, Roman Abramovich came in. Do, do you remember the, the day that he bought the club, that you got the call, we've got a new owner, and perhaps give us a bit of an insight. What was your kind of first interaction like with Roman? Well, it was on a golf course, actually, <laughs> funny enough. It's good. It's a good start. <laughs> when I found out. And um, it was just like, well, I didn't know too much about him, so like you do straight on Google, you start having a... You still can't find out too yeah, much no. about it. <laughs> <laughs> but no, just obviously, then a few months later, we was back in pre-season, you end up meeting him, he come down, and just so down to earth. Really? You know, really shy, really humble, honestly, but just he just wanted to improve things at the football club. So we'd come down the training ground and go, that's not good enough, that needs to be better. We'd go away a week later, we'd have like a new kitchen in place, you know, a new chef would arrive and all the improvements he made. So on the field, we was doing everything. So pitches improved, all of that side of it. But 
even in and around the place, the, the facilities are built with Cobham's unbelievable. Knowledgeable as well, because I often think chairman, if they don't do this, and here's a, a little tidbit for free, they should be on championship manager, football manager, do a couple <laughs> of hours on that. Was he like that? Did he come to you saying, John, I've watched you, this game I enjoyed. Was he knowledgeable or was he very standoff? Knowledgeable on the world of football. Was he really? Yeah. I mean, I'm fortunate I was, on, I was on one of his yachts one summer and he invited me to his and we're, we're sitting there talking about players all over the world and he mentioned a couple of names and I, I didn't have a clue who they were. <laughs> you just nodded. But he then got videos up of he knew every single player would watch constantly because he's continuously looking to improve the Chelsea yeah. team. You know, it was incredible, but these players went on to become, you know, big players. Did he have a, a favourite player at the club? Lamps. Was it? Really? <laughs> was it really? Was it? Yeah. No, I, th I think Lamps, listen, he, he loved the group, but I think the spine of that team was Peter Cech, myself, Lamps and Didier. Yeah. And I think Gus Four was maybe. Jose came in 2004 and people, I think, sometimes forget the success he had at Porto. You broke Celtic's hearts in Seville. Martin O'Neill was in charge, the 3-2 win with Porto. He followed that up the next season. He wins the Champions League, Didier Deschamps in Monaco. Then he comes in and he tells us, the watching world, I am the special one. Day one, he says, this is who I am. What was he like? Give us a bit of an insight into the brash, arrogant Jose on day one. Was that the same that he was? Talk us through those kind of first maybe couple of hours. When he came into the club, what was your interaction like with him? Uh, and how did he kind of set the stall out to say we're going to be a successful football club? Yeah, well, it was funny because obviously all the players are watching that at that press conference as well. We're all texting each other, all phoning each other again. Oh, we could be in for it here. <laughs> but met him the complete opposite. And he was like, he just wanted to get all the players on side. So he, he pulled myself and Lamps individually and then together. And then he pulled all the group together as well. Literally like a full detailed um, slideshow of how he wanted things, how he wanted his players to be around the place, what he expected us and what he expected from us individually and collectively that season. And again, I went from going back to pre-season or under new managers, just, just kind of going and playing really, going to train. With him, it was like he had a schedule. He had the, the first month schedule of going, this day we're doing that, you'll all get that schedule so you know exactly what you're doing. Tell your wives, tell your kids, so you can plan your schedule. A month Make planned out in advance. A month planned out, but then you break it down. He knew what we was doing for the next three months, you know, from a footballing point of view. But day one of pre-season, we're probably a generation where you go in and get your trainers on and run around the pitch. Day one, he was like, no trainers, everyone put your boots on. No one runs, we won't do any running. Everyone put your football boots on. And his fitness coach had the mindset of you never see a pianist running around the piano. You see a pianist practicing on the piano. And it was day one. It just had a big impact on the group where something was different. Something was, was going to be special. How, how quickly did he convince you that you would win the league that season? Oh, day one. Day one. Day one. I promise you. You were, you were instilled with a belief that you would be title winners that day, first day that he was... The first slideshow was... <laughs> the first slideshow. We are champions. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. It was a picture of the trophy. Was it and really? you're not going anywhere further than that. It's that image stays with you the whole season. That's what we're we're going to do this year, and it was like again, no manager had ever done that before. And then you break it down. This is what we need to do to to then go and achieve that. He was he was doing what managers are doing today, 20 years ago. Honestly, incredible. Give us an insight into those training sessions, John. What was it about <clears throat> Josie? Because I think it was Mikel Silvestri joined us on the show and he was travelling with Manchester United. This is a couple of seasons ago. And he said, and I'm not saying anything he hasn't said, mm. that day one, defensive shape. That was the thing. Over in LA, it was defensive, it was defensive, it was defensive. Was that the case back in 2004, those kind of sessions? What was the emphasis on? Pretty much on everything. I wouldn't just say defensively. We was very well organised defensively and we worked on that. But it, also the attacking side of it. So we had people like Didier, Rob and Duff. But we also done a lot, a lot of attacking drills as well. So we had a good bat. The one thing he demanded from those two wide players, from whether that be Joe Cole, Duff or Robin, that they track back and work hard for the team. So he used to have murders with the players on a daily basis, on training, after games, half-time, for them to track back and help the team. Because they can do that going forward, but you don't see many players yeah. doing that going backwards. That 04-05 side, we talk about great Premier League sides from different eras. Recently on the Man City, a couple of Manchester United uh, incarnations as well. You've got Arsenal's Invincibles. Did that Chelsea side, does it get enough credit for you? Was it as good? Was it the equal of those teams? Oh, 100% for me. I think we had a bit of everything. We had a bit of presence. We had some flair in the side. 
very solid, some big personalities, some big characters, um, and, and the best manager for me in, in world football. So, yeah. Give us an insight in Josie, John. Was there a match? Is there a week or a moment where it, it stuck with you, where you just look back on it now and think, that is utter genius? I know Roy Keane has been uh, you know, quoted <coughs> in the last week or so. He says that Fergie, but, and he, he also said Brian Clough as well, Ooh, what's he going to say here? Mm. And then he said they got it absolutely yeah. spot on yeah. all the time. Is there a match, any moment that you can maybe share with us where you think, yes, that stands out to me, Josie there, it was like standing applaud that man? Pretty much, and no word of a lie, pretty much every game, honestly. You, you, we was losing 1-0 at Stamford Bridge, which was unheard of. We had that record at Stamford Bridge for so many years. And we're walking down the tunnel going, oh, he's going to go off here. He's going to go berserk. Come in the tunnel and it's the calmest he's ever been. We was woeful the first half, honestly. We was terrible. Come in. He just knelt down, started like talking about formation. Listen, don't panic. We've not been great. This is what we'll do. We're going to win the game 3-1 if you do this. So go and pressurise him. Let the other centre-half have the ball. He's no good on the ball. We worked on it yesterday. We've not done it. And it was so calm. And it was like, we went out there, we battered and we won the game 3-1. And there was just moments like that in foot where you go, he could have easily gone the other way but didn't. And just knew when to go which way and the other way. And he had it, he had it to a T. O- overall, John, was he more likely to go the hairdryer teacup route or was it that calm exterior? What, if you had to kind of push... Yeah, he, he would go more hairdryer stuff. He would. Yeah, for sure. But he also had the other bit. Because I think if you're like that all the time, you've then, you can't then go to the other place. Mm. If you fluctuate between the two, I think it's a good place to be. And he, he had it. What was it like when he returned to the club? I think six years after he left his first spell, he came back in 2013. What was that like? And as a shot in the arm for, for the Chelsea team, what kind of effect did it have? Well, for me in particular as well, it was uh, so Rafa had just been in charge. I was out of the team. He'd come out publicly, Rafa, and saying my kind of legs had gone up, finished, and, and told the club pretty much that as well, that my time's up at the club. I was in Portugal at the time in uh, having having dinner with my wife and my kids and I get a phone call from Mourinho. I'm taking over, I'm back in charge. It's going to be announced. You're my captain, I love you, I need you to be on it. And I was like that at dinner. I was having a glass of wine, just about to order dessert. I was like that. No wine, no dessert, I want water. I was up the following morning doing two, three sessions a day, making sure that when I went back, but he made me feel, I went from probably being lost in that year under Rafa to then knowing that I had the trust of, of the manager. And, and that knowing, extended your career by four years? A uh, million percent. He, he, he was my career. I owe him so much, honestly. What he'd done for me personally, give me the kind of authorization to kind of lead the way I wanted to lead on the pitch and replicated the way he was in the dressing room and around the place. Excellent and he would be texting you random times. You'd be out shopping with the missus or sat uh, in the bath or whatever else you were yeah. doing, and you get a text from him. You'd be sitting there watching TV, going, "Are oh, you watching this? It's brilliant. It might be a comedy sketch on TV or something." You'd be like, "Yeah, brilliant." But you're having kind of a two-way conversation, and you go back, and then it just stops. That's it. And you go, "He's not replied. <laughs> what, what have I done?" Going the following morning, he don't speak to you, and you're like, oh, "Did I upset him?" Or so you check your messages again and. Then you come in the next day, puts his arm around you. How was last night? How's, how's Tony and the kids? All good. How's their football? Come and sit with you at breakfast. Two days later, you won't acknowledge you. Honestly, incredible. But again, what he'd done as an individual going, I need to go and impress him every single day. And he just knew how to press my buttons, Lamps' buttons. And I think what he had with that is knowing that if he'd done that with me, Lamps, Didier, Peter Cech, Ash, Michael Ballack, Michael Essien, the big character, if he'd done that with us and we was out every single day, the other players who yeah. wasn't playing every week, they had one place to go and that was to match our standards on a, on a daily basis and they had to do that, which then, you then drive, you drive and push people on so you could sign any defender but if he comes in he don't work as hard as me and Carvalho, you're not playing. But just on that though, John, because uh, accusation that has been levelled against Josie is that because you don't know quite everywhere you stand mm. and you're right to say he'll message you how's the kids mm. next day <laughs> he's blanking yeah. you with that though mentally oh if you're not robust I would imagine that could be a bloody nightmare to deal with that and you know the, the accusation has said that he's, he's three year cycles the siege mentality what he demands of you mentally will ensure that the cycle comes to a kind of more natural end is that fair? No I don't think it's fair uh, that's just the way he is he's a winner 
and pretty much if that's a small sided game he wants the players to be able to frame themselves in front of balls getting injured in training if you have to and, and kind of that winning mentality is a must whether it's a small sided game or possession he wants players out every single day and in my generation there I see people like Salah Kevin De Bruyne kind of come through and not being able to, to match his standards at the time now they was very talented but very young individuals as well and, but Mourinho didn't have time to put them in the team or take out a Duff or a Robin because we was winning every single week and his job's on the line. Mm. So, like I said before, if you come in and you're 10%, 20% below the standard of Duff and Robin who are scoring 20 goals a season each, you're not going to make that team. No chance. So, fair play to them. They've gone away elsewhere and proved they're good enough. But at that present time at that football club, they wasn't good enough for Chelsea. Probably only a matter of time before he returns to management. You're obviously embarking on your managerial career. Are you still in touch with Jose? Still in touch with him. Often get a, a message or a phone call kind of out of the blue. But like I say, just just very thankful really that um, still can kind of lean on him for certain things as well. So he's like that with a lot of the players and, and keeps in touch with everyone. Of all the Chelsea managers, again, this is our perspective looking in from the outside and, and everyone was fascinated with the, the kind of toings and froings in the club. It was probably Carlo Angelotti yeah. who we felt as observers was the hardest done by in terms of the way he left the club. Yeah. Is, is that a view you share? Yeah, probably all the players and the supporters probably feel that way as well after winning the double and then getting sacked the way he did as well was probably was probably unfair. And, and as, as players, we felt responsible for that actually because we love Carlo um, and love the way he adapted to English football. And again, you talk about top managers, he was, he was up there with, with Mourinho. And he had that aura, did he? Yeah, he did, yeah. But he had a really good way about him as well That off the field. He had Ray Wilkins around him as well. Two, two of the nicest fellas ever. And um, just tactically, he was excellent. But the way he'd coached before in Italy, he kind of come to England going, we do 40, 50 minutes of, of tactical work every day. And it was, we don't really do that. And he adapted. Did he? You know, he didn't say, no, this is my way and this is how we're doing it. He listened to me, Frank and Didier, and we adapted slightly in our routine. And he was, he was very good at that. You could go to him with, with absolutely anything. And that's an art in itself, I think, as well. You mentioned that he adapted. Uh, again, an observer looking in. Mm. I always felt uh, Andre Villas-Boas and Luis Felipe Scolari. Mm. It was, again, forgive me if I'm wrong, it seemed it was more revolution than evolution mm. with the both of those. I remember you, for, I think his first game, Andre Villas-Boas, you're defending your halfway line. Mm. And I was watching it, that's not playing to John's strengths yeah. <laughs> at all. And they, they both, you know, yeah. put paid with, to their chances of being there a long time. Was that the case? Did they maybe fail to adapt and try to push things, maybe their agenda, too quickly at the football club? Well, I think so. I think people forget as well that a lot of players in that time when, when Andre was in charge, he was the analysis. He was, yeah. The kind of video analysis, he'd do scouting for the opposition. And you'd, you'd kind of see him kind of two, three days a week around the place. All of a sudden he then becomes manager. It's very difficult for the players with there. If it was probably a different group of players, he, he might have settled a little bit quicker. But like all players, you, you judge people of, of how you see things and some of the players kind of didn't enjoy uh, that spell. But yeah, probably because that certainly didn't play to my strength, playing the high line. No. I'd address that to him. That if one goes over the top, I'm struggling <laughs> to get back there. But you know, that's the way he wanted to play and we went with it. And it, it goes back to that. Mourinho is a certain way and he will, he will push and push and push and push. That's the way he is and that's the way he plays. That's the way that's made him successful. In the Premier League, Chelsea, under your time at Chelsea, probably had a group of probably the strongest personalities of any, of any side. And a lot was written about player power. A lot was written about this idea that a manager would quote unquote lose the dressing room. Were these, were these realities for you or is it simply a, a media kind of you know, narrative that, that didn't really tally with what you were experiencing? No, certainly didn't tally with, with how it was perceived, for sure. We, we had big characters, undoubtedly. Um, but I think within that group as well, we was fair and honest with each other. So before you kind of went complaining, to, we would be very harsh on each other as well. So before you start pointing the finger at managers, it was pretty much look at yourself and mm. have a look at your teammates and how can we get better to improve things. And like I say, under Carlo, we felt responsible as players that we didn't probably achieve what we should have done after that, after that very good season. So as players, you, you take responsibility. We never kind of shied away from that as a group. Um, but yeah, the player power stuff of, about being in direct contact with owners and making decisions, that was that was nonsense. Josie came back, of course. Uh, Robbie's rightly pointed out six years later. Had he changed? You know, they often say Fergie mellowed as he got older. Had you, was there any one discernible change where you thought, hmm, this is different? 
No, not really. Still no. very much at it. And it, even after the conversation you have with me in Portugal, so day one of pre-season, we're, we're starting a session and me and Gary Kay are on the ball. We kept giving the ball away in midfield. <laughs> he stopped the session going, you two have been rubbish, basically, with, with a few other words. You two have been rubbish. If I have to go and spend 50 million each on two centre-halves, I will do. If you two don't like this is day one of pre-season. And me and Gaz looked at each other and like, wow, give it away again. Like five minutes later, stop the session. Like he's looking at his game. We just signed Fabregas, Diego Costa. But just what that done for me and Gaz was like, we didn't need livening up. All of a sudden, we set the tone of that session. Yeah. So now we're going around. Me and Gaz are smashing everyone, flying into tackles. It's all become a little bit aggressive. And maybe Jose being being the way he was, probably come back going, these lot think they're, they've made it. They're, they're, they're too comfortable in their role. And it just the level of training went from there up to there again. And that's just by pushing buttons. But again, at the end of that session, he come and put his arm around me and went, that's why you're my captain. You know, And that just lifted me. and still gives me like goosebumps now sitting there. How do the two sides that won the title under Jose, you spoke about Diego Costa, Eden Hazard coming in as well, Sesk, it was an unbelievable side as well. Mm. How did it compare to the, the first Chelsea side, 04-05, that did the double? Yeah, probably probably slightly more technical. Sesk come in was, was excellent. Uh, Diego was a, was a complete handful, wasn't he? Uh, a nightmare to play <laughs> and train yeah. against. On and off the field, yeah, I'm sure. Not, yeah. But a, a really good lad. We had a really good group. I think that f- that first year, 2004-05, is the best for me. But we still, I look at that team, that was some of the football we played. I don't know if you remember the goal at Burnley. Oh, yes. Around the corner to Sher- yeah. Unbelievable football. And some of the passes that he see, he had a relationship with Diego that every time he got it, Diego would just be on his bike. And when you're in training, you pretty much know what's coming. So the ball from Sess is coming without looking around the corner. You still can't stop it. We've had a ton of questions from our listeners and for people on social media as well, John, we're going, to, we're going to get to some of these now. Of all the trophies you won, 15 of them in total, which one stands out above all the others? Champions League, for sure. Champions, still, ch- yeah, I mean, still ch- I yeah. mean p- people ask me, what's the best game? I've been involved, I've not been involved, whatever you want to say, full kit and everything. <laughs> I, was involved. I was going to touch on that, John. That's going to be one of the bigger events, was, was it? Like, for me, that's still... That's still the best night ever. ever. Is that semi against Barca at the New Camp the craziest ninety minutes of football you've ever? Yeah, incredible, wasn't it? Yeah, experience. That that game, I you could watch that a hundred times and wonder how Chelsea. Yeah, it was uncomfortable. Uncomfortable. <laughs> Forty-five minutes in that dressing room, I tell yeah, you. Yeah, I was going to say for you, <laughs> yeah. Fernando galloping. Yeah, I think Gary Neville lost the plot when, yeah, he, when he scored yeah, that. He screamed, yeah. Was the sending off fair in your opinion? Yeah, looking back, yeah, yeah. It yeah. was just it's so caught up in the moment of pressure yeah. that they were imposing. But I don't know if people remember that the home game, he actually coming into the game, he had a dead leg, I think, on, on the, the game before that, coming into, and he was doubtful for that game. So he actually, he, he went to go past me in the home leg and I'd done him on, on the top of his leg, just to let him know that has your here. leg kind of thing, yeah. <laughs> and um, ref didn't see it, wave play on, and I thought I'd get away with it again in, in that early on in the game. Didn't, stupid really, but, you know. The 09, the 09 game. Was that among the most heartbreaking? Oh, without a shadow of a doubt. Oh, honestly, if, if it comes on TV, I still can't watch it. I've not watched the game back at all. Have you I've not? seen the penalty incidents and stuff, but yeah, heartbreaking. Because VAR would have a field day with that game oh, today. Yeah, probably, yeah, or maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I look at that and go, Barcelona were the best team in the world for me. In my generation of playing, some of the football and the individuals they had, we, we outplayed Barcelona that over them two legs. Mm. And that just goes to show how hard it is to win the Champions League. We had the Moscow, obviously, yeah. where we lost. I look at that and go, actually come away from that game thinking that could be it. That could be my last chance there. And then you go and win it in, in Munich. Wow. Where, 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 where Chelsea were not, I mean, they were not favoured. No. wasn't great. You look at the Napoli game, was favourites to get knocked out of that. And then me, Ivanovic, Didier and Frank all scored in the home leg and won 4-1 after extra time. Just it was meant to be. So you need an awful lot of luck along the way and then big comps. I hate to do this to you, John. 2008, when you look back on that night, I mean, how did you reconcile with it? I mean, do you still do you still play it back? I mean, this will chime with a lot of people, you know, whenever we've made a mistake on air yeah. or anything that I've done, I cringe, I'm like, oh, and I replay it back. Do you do that or do you decomper- you know, compartmentalise it in a no, different way? No, I completely think about it all the time. It still wakes me up of the night. I wake it? up randomly weekly I'd say kind of bang it's there like three in the morning four in the morning yeah it's a, it's a hard one 
it's something I'll never forget. But like I'm saying, even though I wasn't playing in Munich, that's kind of outweighs yeah. the disappointment of that. So for any kind of young kids or anyone playing, there will be disappointments along the way. That's my biggest by far. But then there's a lot of upsides in it. This will well. be a bit of a weird question. I put this to Robbie a little earlier. Whenever we make mistakes in, in every walk of life, you'll try and correct them. If you're on the golf course and you try and hit a fade and you duff it, you'll hit a fade the next day. Hmm. First day back at pre-season, did you put that ball on the penalty spot and stick it in the corner where you were planning to go? No, I didn't. It's, no? A, it's a bizarre one because people will forget three days later we played at Wembley against America. We won the game 1-0. I scored from a header from the edge yes. of the box. And after the game, honestly, I just burst into tears going, I would have swapped that goal for that, for that. How can I score from there and not there with my head and blah, blah. So it goes for it. Still, honestly, still makes me emotional today. But I, it was, I'd taken a penalty in the Euros for England and scored. I was, I should have taken one in uh, 2006. Yeah. Didn't. But I was always very confident. After that, I was shot a bit confident-wise for taking penalties. So you talk about... Lamps and then four players having that responsibility and that's that's a big pressure. To Did you with, insist on being number five? No, the... Kalu was supposed to be number five, so I was always number six and Elka number seven. So Kalu was there, and for some reason or not, he, you know, I still don't know why I was. We all kind of looking long, and it's like if no one else is going, then I'll go. So Kalu didn't step forward. No, but he was he was probably one of the best penalty takers. That it wasn't that he didn't want to. He didn't, apparently he didn't want to step forward because I was there and oh. so it was, it, listen, like I said before, it wasn't meant to be. It's part of my journey. Yeah. It's the biggest disappointment. Honestly, I can't even go into detail how bad and how, how much it affected me and still does. But that Munich surpasses that by far. And in terms of the best player from your first Premier League title in 2005 to your last one in 2007, who was the best player Present company excluded, whoever put on a Chelsea shirt. Lamps. Yeah, What's it really? Yeah, without a doubt, honestly. Uh, there's been some exceptions. Like, Ed, if you look technically and, and everything, Eden's probably that one who's above everyone else. The ability he had was phenomenal. But when I look at I look at Frank go on a yearly basis, on a daily basis, he was he was the best trainer. I tried to be the best trainer and I, I gave my everything. Lamps would always run further than you, would work harder than you, but he was always my go-to as a player. So if ever there was a moment in a game or train, I'd look at him and there he'd be flying about. And I'd be like, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. You're my mate, I'm with you. you know? And it, he would have that effect and that, that would be infectious in, in players. And again, kind of what that done to the group as well was, was amazing. So I look at that and I'm not just saying it, he was the most determined and hard-working player I've come across. We, with ability as well, let's not forget the ability he had. You know? Yeah, we've had Harry Redknapp sat on that very chair, of course, the uncle of Frank, yeah. and he talks about Frank's father being exactly the same, mm. that he was always accused of being slow, yeah. and he said he'd have the cones out, and he'd be out, rain or shine, working yeah. on getting his speed up, and he, yeah. and he did tell us a story when he was at West Ham where Frank was at the far end, and yeah, he phoned security. Someone's jumped over the fence mm. and he saw these two security guards running out and it was Frank. Sleep was coming down yeah. and there was Frank just working on his game. I mean, that appetite to be the very best, mm. I mean, that is an, is an absolute credit to himself. And I guess that's for any youngster to be the best. You've got to put yeah. in the yards. A great credit and example to every young player, as you're saying as well. And we had it. So after training, he would do his shooting, but take a bag of balls. And it was like, it wasn't going to shoot and try and put it in the top corner. Lamps was like game mode, game mentality, game speed. And if you're not going to come and do that with him and you're going to try and put it in the top corner, then go away, go down the other end and do your shooting. Same with his with acceleration drills where we'd do it and players would come there and go, what are you doing? If there wasn't up to his standard, he'd send them away. This is a standard, but even after games, Lamps used to have conversations with his dad on the phone. He just scored two goals, or and you hear his dad go, "You should have scored three. And then them <laughs> to have an argument. Yeah, but I tried, and but they must have just pushed each other constantly. You know, it's it's incredible. And, and now where he is today, the hardest player to defend against in your entire career, or the the the, the opponent you found the hardest in the Premier League, Omri for me. Mm. Really? Uh, yeah. Overall, I think I look at Ronaldinho and Messi being being the two that really stand out for me, but on a on a weekly basis, Henri. Why Henri? Uh, just his pace was frightening. But also on the back of that, he had everything. Could score with his right foot, left foot, header, his movement. You know, you couldn't give him an ounce. You know, you, you'd try and be physical against him. He'd be physical back. 
he'd knock it past you, try and run around the outside of you. He, he could do absolutely everything. And he was probably the most fearful that I... And I, I was never really worried going in. always got nervous, but never worried. He was one player that worried me. A couple of strikers who fail to really kind of set Stamford Bridge alight. Andre Shevchenko, mm. lot of, a lot of kind of fanfare. I mean, for what he did at AC Milan when he arrived. Fernando Torres, perhaps a little harsh. He did go on and win the Champions League, of course. But those two, why didn't they just quite click at Chelsea, John? I'm not too sure. They didn't really hit the ground running when they arrived. And again, big pressure, big money signings come from big football clubs. Just didn't happen. Like it hasn't for many strikers at the club. There's been a lot of big yeah. strikers kind of come in. It's difficult when you're following people like Dids and you've got to shift Dids out of the team. Do you, how do you get a run in the team when you know you might get one game, if you don't score, you're out for four or five. It's difficult to then get that rhythm as well, which, which people tend to forget as well. For club and country, who was the centre-back partner that you had the best understanding with? Who was your favourite partner to play with? I love Carvalho. Yeah, yeah Ricky. Just, just what we, just as, as characters, as players, I spent the whole game telling him to come back because he'd go on these bursting <laughs> runs and leave me stranded at the back. I'm thinking, I need your pace back. You need to come back. But just a brilliant lad. We had a really good, a really good relate. Even Gaz Kale late on when we played together because he got on so well off the field. I knew exactly what he was doing and, and vice versa. But me and Ricky in them first, first three years, definitely. One thing I've, I've deduced from you, John, over the course of the last 55 minutes or so is that you, you stand up, you, you take responsibility. You are, by the very definition, a leader. The accusation today is that you look across not just the big clubs, a lot of the, the kind of smaller clubs trying to make their way in the game, not enough leaders. Mm. Do you see that? Is, is that lazy from us to, to throw that accusation out there? I think it's a dying breed, definitely. But again, I think that comes with you know, being like that on a daily basis. I just don't think on a daily basis players care enough. And like I say before, whether it's a small-sided game or a head tennis tournament or a game of two-touch, I want to win at all costs. If I'm playing my kids at Tableton, I want to win. My wife goes mad at me. You've got to let them win. I go, no. <laughs> you know, But w when they beat me, they know that they're beating me. And... You know, they've got to work hard to go and beat me. If they want to beat me at poor table tennis, it's going to be a tough game. Yeah. You know, I just think... Are you like, doing the Earl Woods effect? Are you are you grooming them to become sports stars? Uh, my little boy is a, a decent golfer. Uh, my little girl, she's very keen on football and spent uh, three years at Chelsea. Um, she's pulled away from football a little bit. She's maturing a little bit. They're 13 now, so she's pulled away. But yeah, going back to the to your a bit, I've, I've, I just don't think they're at it every single day. And... I was probably the least talented within within that group of players, but I was the best trainer or up there with the best trainers or 100% every single day. And I think if you've got that, it's a, it's a good foundation. How do you and, and Dean, and I'm talking Villa now, if you see that and, and you can understand that, look at them, not quite, is it a case of drilling it into them? How do you make it so that is cognitive for um, them that they are getting that? Can I mean, you do that? I mean, you try to, but again, you look at individuals and being a, being a good captain, I think you need to know individuals, the ones you can scream and shout at, the ones you need to put an arm around, pretty much like Mourinho did with me. He knew that he could scream and shout at me and, in front of everyone or individually, he'd get the best out of me. There was others that he probably couldn't and didn't, you know. But I think when we look, I mean, Eden Hazard's the, the the prime example of that. He was the worst trainer. Was know, he really? Would, would have his laces undone, really relaxed, didn't want to get injured during the week, didn't want to push. The, but give him the ball and he'll come alive. So if he's on your team, you know you have to sacrifice. You probably have to work a little bit harder. But you know going forward, he's going to produce you 20, 25 goals a season. And in the games as, well, as players, you accept that because he was so good. You know, with him and Mourinho would have discussions on a daily basis. You need to work hard and he'd go, boss, give me the ball Saturday, I'll score three goals. <laughs> you know, that's his answer, but he can back it up the weekend as well. So if you're a manager, you've got someone like him that doesn't need to be out every single day then you need to find that balance, don't you? We're into the final five minutes in conversation with John Terry. Questions still pouring in for you, John. And I'm conscious we'll probably try and rattle through as many as we possibly can. I've got to do this. I'm a proud Scot. John McGinn. <laughs> he's the future of Scottish football, is he not? Unbelievable, John McGinn. He's a player, isn't Super he? It's a John shame McGinn. they've got, not got a few more. <laughs> yeah. I wish he was English, <laughs> Ginny. clone him. He's, he's a player. Honestly, he's been incredible. It's been a, He's one of them that you kind of you love to coach and work with because he's brilliant in team meetings. He's pretty much old school where, you know, if he's made a mistake in a, in a team meeting, before the meeting starts, he'll be like, sorry, lads, that's me. You know, put his hand up and it, he's just got a really good way about him. But 
unbelievable player. I mean, people talk about his physical status and the way he gets about the park, but technically, yeah. superb, great strike, both feet, can score with both feet, headers. He's been he's been vital for us this year. James, one of our listeners, is asking, what's the most intimidating away ground in European and international football that you've played in? Probably Anfield. I think a few big occasions there and the Champions League nights. Did it cross the line, John? <laughs> <laughs> Can't believe we even asked that. No. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> Anfield, though. I mean, I've yeah. I've had the pleasure of Anfield. It, it is. Yeah, it's good. You have to you have to respect. I mean, their fans are incredible, aren't they? You know, I took a lot of stick there personally over the years, well, but you kind of yeah, you, you do respect what they are as a football club and and the way they get behind their team. Is this their year? I think it has to be. I think the result of the weekend pretty yeah. much cemented that. I think it was a penalty in the early on for, for Man City. But um Are they are they and this is I appreciate we, we compare and contrast eras and teams, but are, are what Liverpool and City, what was it? City won their last fourteen last season, mm. Liverpool thirteen. Yeah. Liverpool have carried that on to this campaign, eleven wins and a draw from their twelve. Have they raised the bar now to, to levels that we haven't seen in English football? Yeah, I think they've both done that, yeah. And I, and I think when you got two teams doing that, we had that with Man United constantly uh, when Mourinho first arrived. You know, knowing that you had to win, you couldn't drop points. If you're that one team, you can maybe afford to slip up. You're a little bit relaxed. Where the, the both of them are pushing each other, I think it's great for English football. But two great managers, two really, really good teams with, with superb individuals. And I want to ask about Brendan Rodgers. I'm his biggest fan. I'm sorting out a fan club over in this part <laughs> of the way because I, the amount of arguments I've had with Liverpool fans who, it was Suarez, it was nonsense. Mm. It was he that gave Raheem Sterling at 17 the chance. I always remember the performance, the first half performance against Liverpool at Anfield. They steamrolled them, mm. so they did. How good's Brendan? And is he... Is he Leicester, not being disrespectful to Leicester, a big club and, and they're going places, but is he destined for another big job? Yeah, 100%. You know, he's doing great at Leicester. I'm sure he's got targets to go and, to go and achieve at Leicester, but a little insight, when uh, Mourinho was in charge, Brendan would be youth team manager at the time. He used to constantly come across, would speak Spanish and Portuguese, very fluent, would come in and have a really good rapport with the players, but Mourinho would let him in and kind of let him observe and get him really involved. But e even a spell... I, I wasn't scoring. I felt being a defender it was a big part of my game as well. I think I hadn't scored in nine nine games, which seems bizarre. But Brendan pulled me, and it probably wasn't having my best games either. Pulled me. He had a, a video for me, a three-minute video. I was a first-team player. He was youth team manager. He pulled me. Went come into the office. He was like, I've seen you around the place, and you know. He said, Who motivates the motivator? He said, This is what I'm here for. Have a look at this. All my goals that I'd scored throughout my Chelsea career, tackles, blocks, he's going, don't you ever forget how good you are. And you know what? He just was like, wow, that's powerful, that. And I, I, funny enough, I scored the next game and kind of dedicated it to him. But little details like that, you go back in 2000, 2004, five, we're talking 20, 20, 20 years ago. ago yeah. It's like, that's impressive from from him. But he, he was excellent. He you, was, you've, you've spoken about kind of the, a lot of this conversation is centered on man management and how you deal with players and how you lead players. How important is philosophy, overarching football philosophy? Have you got one of your own? And you look at Guardiola, you look at Jurgen Klopp, and the, the kind of high press and the high energy that, that Liverpool play with. It seems like in the modern day, a manager has to come with a kind of brand yeah. of playing football. Yeah, I think as well. If you're if you're a young manager going. To, going to speak to an owner as well. I think they'd be wanting that presentation. It, it's kind of all moved on to. So you have to be really prepared as well, which I am. I've got my own style of how I want to play. But as well, individually as well, you look at you look at Liverpool. So we played Liverpool a couple of weeks ago and their front three are pressing. We clip it into our full-back over Sane's head. It, I think it was in about the eighth minute. If you get a chance, have a look at the way he turns and sprints and gets on the toes of our full-back. And you're going, you're talking, Sterling's the same as well at Man City. You're talking about the players at the top of their game working their socks off for their team, knowing what role they play defensively and offensively. And I think they're, they're clearly set up of how they want to play. They know exactly what they're doing. And I think that's vital as well. I think everyone gets obsessed with want to play out from the back. There's still nothing wrong with, yeah. with a 50-yard ball into the striker and bypassing seven players and then playing from there. This is added on time, John, and I promise I'm going to wrap this up in the next minute or two. The phone, does it ring? From chairman that say, John, you fancy a, a gig here? <laughs> Not yet. I'm happy. I've just signed a, a, a new contract at Villa, so I'm happy. Uh, I'm really glad what I've done, actually, of coming, learning under someone like Dean. And he's such a big club in Aston Villa, and we're back in the Premier League. So 
for me, when the time's right, clearly I want to be a manager. Um, Villa, Villa know that and, and Dean knows that as well. But honestly, I'm thoroughly enjoying and learning and, and watching and seeing how he works on a daily basis. But at the same time, having conversations with Brendan, I'm planning to go to the training ground to watch them. Oh, he lets you. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. you're assistant manager of Aston Villa, but yeah. Brendan would open up the door and say, "Come yeah. on, enjoy." Obviously, not a day before we play them, but <laughs> no, sure. But yeah, it's, it, you go back to all the managers. I mean, I spoke to Antonio and Carlo. You know, they're very open for me to go over and kind of watch them for a couple of days when I get a chance as well. And I think as a coach, you always want to adapt and try new training sessions and, and see what the next thing is. So how can you kind of implement that? In? And, and what is your, your style? And, and again, coming back to Brendan, he was here quite recently and he said that, he, he talked eloquently about Josie, he said the best mm. piece of advice he was ever given was from Fergie, who said, Brendan, as soon as you can get your coaching staff to think and see the game as you do and take a step back, yeah. I promise you, you'll learn things in a week that you never dare dream of. Yeah. And, and he said it's the best It's the best thing he's done. He did yeah. it in his final season at Celtic. I would imagine he's now doing it yeah. at Leicester. Are, is that the case with Dean? Is he quite standoffish and, and you're in with the players? I think a, a real good balance, actually. And, and Dean's got a really good uh, relationship with Sir Alex Ferguson as well. So I'm sure he's had that yeah. same conversation. But I think as well, I think when, when you get given the manager's job, it's like, I need to control everything. And that's the really good ones, actually. I think the older generation of managers actually take a back seat and kind of watch from a distance. And, and sometimes you can get a better perspective, can't you, of what's going on. Because sometimes I think when you're involved in that, if you trust and employ your coaches in, in the right way and trust what they're doing, you can afford to do that and step back. John, we, we need to Yeah, I'm going to gonna say, up. I'm getting a lot of people looking at me. John is a very busy boy today. The Dubai Fitness Challenge, and we'll just maybe take it full circle and, and finish there. The Dubai Fitness Challenge is now into its, its third year. The initiative, as Robbie said at the start, 30 minutes for 30 days. I guess the message, and you're the embodiment of it as a professional athlete, do that every day. Try and build that into your kind of daily life and, and live an active and, and healthy lifestyle. Well, that's the important thing, isn't it? I think I think it's small details as well where you can have an impact. You know, if there's a lift, can you go down the stairs? Can you come up the stairs? It's small details. So I'm sure throughout the day there, there's 30 minutes of exercise that everyone can get in, but not just the parents as well. I think the kids as well. Get the kids actively involved, get them off their computers yeah. and working for 30 minutes. I think, you know, setting generations and it's not only our generation, we want to, you know, insert a, a mindset into the next. And I've got to ask as well, John, how is the golf game? Okay, I'm not playing as much though now. I've not got enough time on my hands <laughs> no, now. Of I'm a coach. Not. Yeah. Are you going to get a round in here? I'm not, unfortunately. I'm going to enjoy the sun, I think. Well, listen, John, it's been an absolute pleasure for us to have you in. Thank you so much. I mean, you've spared an hour and five minutes. I know an awful lot of love that's coming through on our Facebook page. Bless you. Good luck for the rest of the season. Good luck to Aston Villa. And tell John I'm asking for it. <laughs> I will do. Good pleasure, stuff. guys. Thanks John very much. Terry, John. absolute Thanks. legend, former Chelsea, former England captain. This is Dubai Eye 103.8.